Do me a favor, get your Bible out. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and we are making our way uh, through the letter of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, Lord willing, there's one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take that one with you, okay? We'd love for you to have a copy uh, of the Word of God, and uh, especially if you'll read it on a regular basis. Last night, I had some friends over from the church, and uh, they, it was roast the pastor for a little bit, which I always laugh at, and they said that I look too angry when I preach. So I'm trying. Okay, so here, I'll smile. All right, let's dive in. All right, so um, I'm trying. I'm not angry. I'm passionate, all right? Uh, so here we go. I want to start this morning by asking you some uncomfortable questions. I actually asked a couple of these a year or so ago, um, and it, yeah, I'm not going to give you an answer, and they're intended to make you uncomfortable, Okay. Uh, and so it's, it's, the, it's the game called Can a Christian. So here we go. Ready? Can a Christian watch a rated R movie? Uh, you don't have to answer these out loud, by the way. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Some are. All right. Can a Christian smoke or use tobacco? Okay. These are intended to be quiet. All right. They get more. It's, it's family worship. I'm going to skip over a few of these since we're answering them out loud. Okay. <laughs> Oh, this is wonderful. I'm having so much fun. Can't, I'm smiling inside. I'm bursting with laughter, okay? Can a Christian vote Democrat, especially if the stance of the Democrat is for abortion or gay marriage, things that are, we would say are unbiblical? Can a Christian vote for Trump? Right? Fortunately, we're not in a presidential election year. You know, these, pe these questions get people really spun up. Can a Christian buy a lottery ticket? I would say if you tithe on the winnings. Okay, so um, just, kidding. just kidding. Can a Christian play sports on Sunday? Should a Christian family send their children to public school? Can a Christian celebrate Halloween or bring a Christmas tree into their house as part of their Christmas celebration? Yeah, <laughs> this is the best sermon I've ever preached. <clears throat> there's your answer, parents. There's your answer, okay? Can a Christian in... <laughs> Let's move on. Let's go to point one. Um... <laughs> Can a Christian invest in stocks of a company that are making profits off of things that the Bible would call sinful behaviors? Okay. I may own a few. Um, you never know what's in that mutual fund. But um, so how many of you are on the edge of your seat, right, with these difficult questions? And so, um, you know, Paul warns us, I think, in this passage of Scripture not to be overly dogmatic on issues that we don't need to be overly dogmatic on, but rather our focus should be on Christ and His gospel. And especially during the presidential election, like we get really passionate about who we're supposed to vote for, and sometimes we make it a Christian, non-Christian thing, right? And, and I think the Bible informs our vote, and I, you know, I could preach sermons on how as Christians we should take a Christian worldview in, into the voting booth, but, but I'm not sure the, Christ, the, the Bible tells us exactly who we're supposed to vote for. Yet, 
you know, some of us, man, especially during the presidential elections, man, we get really spun up, don't we? And like, man, I'm going to make a difference in this world. I'm going to go post on Facebook, you know, kind of thing. And anyway, that was a needless shot. But anyway, um, but, but the Bible, the Scripture gives us guiding principles to guide our, our thinking. And, and, but to be sure there's, there's gray areas in our life and to be sure that there are matters of conscience. And, and Paul even tells us in Rome, if, if something burdens your conscience, and to you it's a sin, then to you it's a sin. Uh, but we also have to be aware, maybe that doesn't burden other believers quite the way that it, that it burdens you. And so Paul has been building this case that above all, it's Christ. Above all, we focus on Christ and his gospel. Above all, we focus on human nature where we're told, man, the Bible defines for us what sin is and that we have to repent of our sin and we have to believe in Christ. That's, that's what we're about above all is Christ. And so Paul is warning in verse 16 the danger of legalism. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, therefore, let, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regards to festival or new moon or Sabbath, these these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We're to focus on the substance. And by the way, let me define legalism for you. Legalism is, is it really, it's adding to Scripture. It's, it's saying more than Scripture says. And in fact, you know, as I preach, um, Part of preaching is understanding the culture that you live in, taking the Word of God that was written to a culture 2,000 years ago, and some even more in the Old Testament, and, and applying it to this culture, right? And so in that application, uh, we have to sometimes make application, but sometimes the application can change if culture changes, not the Word of God changing, but we have to be careful of, of making the application as if it's God's Word itself. And the idea is we can make application, but, but in that application, to, to think that no one could, uh, could make a different application can be unwise and untrue. And so there's dangers in legalism. Some of the dangers of legalism is self-righteousness, right? We, we, we put up a list of man-made rules, and, and then if I keep my own rules, then I can make sure that God is pleased with me. How do I know? And so legalism says, I've made the rules, I've kept the rules, God is now happy with me. And when we do that, we ignore the gospel. We ignore sin nature. We ignore that we need the declared righteousness of Christ. It's not that we need to be good. It's that we need to be perfect. And the only way that we're perfect is when the righteousness of Christ is gifted to us by grace alone, through faith alone. So the danger of legalism is I, I become arrogant in my spiritual journey. And I'm righteous because I've kept my own man-made rules of what righteousness looks like or doesn't look like. There's also the danger of self-condemnation. The opposite is also true. I've made the rules that I think God wants me to keep. I don't then keep my own rules, and therefore I see myself as unworthy in the presence of the Lord. Instead of understanding the gospel, our worthiness has nothing to do with our doing or not doing. It has everything to do with the doing of Jesus. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. He is righteous. His righteousness is granted to us by grace through faith. It's the doctrine of justification, right? And so there's the danger of self-condemnation. And there's the danger of, uh, if we add rules to the text or to the Word of God that God hasn't actually put there, there's the danger that we don't take the Word of God seriously. Well, how so? Well, you remember the first sin, right? In, in, in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent comes up and she, he tempts Eve, 
And he asked, man, what did God say? And she said, well, God said that we can't eat of any of the fruit of the, uh, we can't eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden. And then she added to the word of God. She said, neither shall we touch it or we're going to die. Well, God didn't say that. Well, why is it dangerous? I mean, she probably thought she was doing a good thing by fencing off, you know, not only am I not going to eat it, I'm not going to touch it. But when you add the punishment that, to a word that God didn't say, what happened? So when she reached out and she touched the fruit, what happened? Anybody? Nothing happened. What did she think was going to happen? She would die, right? Well, God didn't say that. He said, if you eat of the fruit. So now she believes in her mind, well, God must not be true to his word. And she begins to believe a lie. Well, God is true to his word. She just added to the word where God hadn't said. So those are the dangers of legalism. And so what we see here in Colossians is we have this really unique blend, okay, where there's this new movement of the Lord moving us from old covenant to new covenant. And so in these early churches, you had Jews that were worshiping God rightly under the old covenant. And now the Messiah has come, and now they're worshiping God under the new covenant, and there are parts of the Old Testament law that Christ has fulfilled and done away with, okay, including the food laws. And so Paul is reminding them it's not about food and days, okay, because they're setting aside particular days. In other words, the food laws, Jesus did away with the food laws. So, they, so there were New Testament leaders saying, no, we've got to eat what we were told to eat in the Old Testament. And, and, and these Gentile believers are going, no, no, Jesus did away with the food laws. In Mark chapter 7, we see this where it says he, he called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable he just taught. And he said, he said to them, then are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and then is expelled, thus Jesus declared all food, all foods clean. Jesus fulfilled the food laws of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the Sabbaths in special days. So there's people saying, you know, we have to keep the Sabbath. We have to, to be a Christian is to trust in Christ and adding on. We got to keep the Sabbath. And so I could say a lot about the Sabbath, right? And, and by the way, I don't want to undermine the Sabbath completely. First of all, it's a created order, right? Six days Christ, God created. Seventh day he rested. There's a rest principle. It's also the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments. And last week I talked about the goodness of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to come back to the Sabbath here in just a second. But, you know, even, in, even here in American Christianity, like we have to be really cautious about special days. God has, God has made all days, 365 days a year, an opportunity to worship. Yes, all that we do is worship, even on the work day. And we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks. Paul gets into, man, what our work days should look like. Why? Because there are opportunities to worship. It's not like this day is above this day is above this day. It's 365 days a year is worship. All that we do. See, the danger of making it a special day or a special time, even corporate worship, you know, one of the dangers of calling this building God's house. I hear that all the time. It's God's house. And I, I know we mean well, and I, I get all the Old Testament shadowing, foreshadowing, all that. But we do have to be careful because if it's God's house, and God lives here, right? And so we can leave God his house, and we can go to do our own thing, right? We kind of separate that. No, what is the, in the new covenant? God's house is the heart. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so he goes with us if you're a Christian, right? And so he goes with us we go into sin, man, and that should gross us out and make us flee from sin. And so we have to be really careful. And I, I see, actually, I think there's three big days in, in American Christianity. 
where we heighten the day, okay? And, and it's Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and, and Easter, right? And those are great days, and I love that we live in a culture that even lost people go, yeah, I think I'm supposed to go to church on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and Easter, and I love that, and we should leverage that, and we should invite our neighbors so that they can hear the gospel. I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of that. I don't like when people throw, well, they only come on Christmas and Easter. I'm like, thank God they come on Christmas and Easter. We're going to give them the gospel, okay? And I hope that people will hear the gospel, and we should be excited about those opportunities. But there's nothing special in, the, in, in and of themselves around those particular particular days about worship to Christ. And one of the things that happens about, I don't, some of y'all know exactly, but it seems like about every 10 years of my ministry, eight to 10 years of my ministry is Christmas Eve falls on Saturday and then Christmas Day falls on Sunday. And it's happened a few times in my ministry. I never know what to do with that, right? Because it's like, man, do I, and so what I have done is we have services on Christmas Eve, and then on Christmas Day, I let families be with one another, right? And so inevitably, when I make that decision, I'll get a few emails. Hey, Pastor Sean, you know, uh, and by the way, so I'll just save you the email next time it happens. So Pastor Sean, like, you know, it's like Christians and Christmas Day. How can we not worship on Christmas Day? It's Sunday and Christmas. And I'm like, there's going to be like six people there. Like, here's the keys. You show up. You know, my kids are going to do the family. So, you know, there's nothing in and of the day, right? And we have to be cautious not to uplift this day and not get like, I can't believe, you know. And, and, but we have to be cautious. However, there is a rest principle to the Sabbath. Right? And it seems as we look at the New Testament that the New Testament believers shifted their corporate worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, what we call the Lord's Day. And you see that in Acts chapter 20 and in Revelation chapter 1. And we ultimately know that Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath, Hebrews 4. And we looked at that a few years ago when we preached through Hebrews. Probably another chapter, another sermon for another day, right? But, but ultimately, what we do here on earth is a symbol and a shadow of the substance. That's what Paul says in verse 17. And what's the substance? The substance is Christ. And we find our ultimate rest in heaven, right? Now, I would encourage you, I, I would encourage you to use Sunday to, to think about resting because that's a Sabbatarian, it's a created order principle, I would encourage you to use your Sunday as doing some things different than you might normally do. Again, this is not legalistic. In fact, uh, when Jesus was being attacked by the Pharisees about his Sabbath keeping, and, and he says in, in Luke chapter 14, he's like, which of you, if your ox doesn't fall in a ditch, okay, you don't go pull your ox out of a ditch, Right? And so like for, like for me, one of the things I try not to do is I try not to, to do ordinary works around the house on Sunday. I try not to, but I remember years ago, man, I remember it was a particular season of my life. My kids were super busy. We were super busy as a family. And I literally had gone like three weeks without cutting my lawn. And I knew I had two straight weeks where I wasn't going to be able to get to cutting my lawn. And so it was a Sunday and I felt so guilty, but I'm out there on Sunday with my mower and I'm like, my ox is in a ditch. My ox is in a ditch. And I was just pushing my mower. I just kept repeating that over and over, you know. And there's the freedom, like, okay, cut your lawn. But, you know, we try to just be mindful that, uh, uh, that re and, and I think Psalm 127 is probably one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament that reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain, right? You can labor and labor and labor. And then the next verse says, you, you rise early, you work late, and you eat your bread in anxiousness, right? Like I got to earn, I got to earn, I got to earn. I eat my bread in anxiousness. And then the verse ends with, verse two ends with, 
The Lord gives to his beloved even when they sleep. And I love that because to me, it's, it's a rest principle. And the rest principle has been uh, the whole universe doesn't hang on me. Isn't that great news? You don't have to run yourself ragged. The Lord's going to provide. He's going to provide your, what you need. And so you, you can take a rest knowing ultimately all your provision depends on the Lord. One of the things we try to do on Sunday is, ready for this? It's going to sound really spiritual. We try to take a nap. Anybody else do that? Yes, it's awesome. It's a rest principle, right? Try to take a nap if we can. We, 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 try, to, we try to. It's not legalistic. We try to cut back electronics. It's a, it's a war, okay? But we try to. Like, hey, let's just throttle back a little bit unless I want to watch sports, okay? And so, <clears throat> and that's a family. It's like, hey, guys, let's gather around and watch the NFL. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we try to do family devotions. Again, it's not legalistic, but by the evening, after we try to do small group and we try to, to do family devotions. Why? These are rest principles. But we're mindful that, so the Colossian church is fighting with this food and these days from the Old Testament on important, all these festivals. And, but Paul's ultimately saying mindful that these are shadows of the substance, which is Christ. Remember it's about Christ. Remember it's about Christ. Even in the New Testament, our symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us that the substance is Christ, and we need to focus on Christ. So Paul warns of legalism. Secondly, he warns of mysticism. He warns of mysticism, okay? Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Paul's warning about mysticism. It's the, it's the idea, mysticism is the idea that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the intellect and the senses. That's a false idea. It's the idea that, man, there's a spiritual thing and, 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 and you, you can't know it unless you have kind of this mystical, you have these visions, you have this really cool stuff. Jesus, Jesus was very clear about how we love God, right? Matthew 22, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, okay, now heart is the idea of the seat of everything, your emotions, your reasoning, your, 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 your passions, your, even your thinking, right? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and finally with all of your what? With all your mind. Romans 12, too, G Paul talking about, man, what does spiritual worship look like? In verse 2 of Romans 12, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your what? Your mind. Why? But, and then he says that we should be able to test and discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 4 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's, any, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what, church? Think. Let your mind dwell on these things. I could go on and on because the Bible encourages us to use our minds. By the way, I'm not trying to be like a rationalistic approach to, to knowing God. Of course, they're supernatural, right? But I do think the pendulum of Christianity in America at least has swung way over here where we have this kind of this idea that, man, I just want to see the stuff. 
I want to see visions and miracles and healings. Like, I, I, you know, man, if that happened, man, I would really believe and others would believe. I want to see angels and, and on and on the list goes. And, and I think in that we're forgetting the great supernatural work of God, which is what? Anybody know? Two things. Creation. We are told in Romans 1 to look at creation. We are to look at creation and understand the supernatural exists and created order and the study of creation should let us know, man, God exists and God has intervened into our existence and he's amazing. It's a miracle, yes? And the second thing we're to look at is the, is the person and the work of his son, Jesus. Think about this. Jesus worked hundreds and hundreds of miracles including the most convincing miracle of all, which was the resurrection of Christ that ultimately killed mankind's greatest enemy. What's our greatest enemy? It's death. He killed death fully and finally upon his resurrection. And then Jesus has called us to spread this life-giving, hope-giving message in and through the local church and local church ministries. And for many, this is not sufficient. The resurrection of Christ should be enough for us. If God never intervened, and I'm not saying he doesn't, but if he never intervened with another healing, another miracle, another vision, all this thing that we're all kind of hoping for, Paul is saying what he has given us in Christ is enough. Long for Christ, yes? Some of y'all are like, I don't know. I'll yell louder, okay? I'll, get, I'll look angry. Wait a minute. Okay, here we go. Um, <clears throat> Paul is condemning this desire, I believe, here for the cool stuff when God in Christ, through the ministry of the Word, through the ministry of the local church, is sufficient. Is sufficient because he's already given us the greatest miracle, which is the resurrection of Christ. And so our hope is not in angels and visions, our hope is not in angels and visions. Matthew chapter 4, on the temptation of Christ. What did Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, not angels. You worship the Lord your God and Him only. And we don't need any new revelation. He's given us that in Christ. And then through the apostles, we have the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us how, church? By his son, right? This was the final huge big movement of God. The sending of his son, whom he appointed to heir all things, through whom all things are created. And so Paul is clear. The church doesn't need to get sidetracked on legalism, and it doesn't need to get sidetracked on mysticism, but rather, church, our spiritual growth is being connected to Christ. It's being connected to Christ. Colossians 2.19. Paul says, and not holding fast. So they want all this mysticism, they want visions, they want angels, but they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. By the way, what is Paul doing here? He's using probably his favorite illustration for the church. He's saying the church is a body. And so how do we grow? We're connected to Christ, who's the head, and then we grow together in the local church ministries. Listen, never underestimate the power of the local church. 
The local church is what God is doing for, since Christ ascended until he returns again. That is how we are nurtured spiritually. It's not rules, Paul says. It's not mysticism. It's being connected to Christ. Feast on Christ. Feast on Christ. Feast on Christ. John 15. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Why? Because apart from me, what can you do, church? Nothing. You're not making any spiritual, eternal difference apart from Christ. And Paul's very clear here in verse 19. Like, you know, feast, when I say feast on Christ, feast on Christ, feast on Christ, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. It means to connect to Christ through your local church, the body. Be a part of your local church. If you can't be a part of this one, I, find one you can, honestly. Because that's, like we want the mysticism, we want the legalism, but man, we somehow we've, you know, I love Jesus, but the church, eh, no, the church is what God is doing, and we feast on Christ. How? By being a part of the local church. What is our vision statement at Coastal? To develop what? Authentic followers of Jesus Christ. We want you to do that in three ways. What are the three ways? Connect, grow, and serve. These are New Testament principles. We didn't just kind of pull these out of a hat. We want you to connect by being a part of corporate worship. We want you to grow by being in a small group so you're in fellowship. You have other believers encouraging you and helping you. And we want you to find a place to serve, to use your, your gifts and your talents, both a ministry of Coastal and a mission of Coastal. That's how we're nurtured in Christ. Maybe that bores you. But maybe that's what's missing in your nurturing. Are one of those three things missing? Maybe two of those three things are missing. And you're not growing in Christ. I want to finish with this and we'll close with prayer this morning. There's a great story that I read this week of a rabbi named Hugo Grin. He was, he was a young boy. He was sent to Auschwitz. And as he and his family were in this concentration camp, and they're watching the death of others in this horrible concentration camp. The Jews and their religious observance, they, they, they tried to hold on to whatever religious observances they could without drawing the frustration and anger of the German guards. And so on one cold winter evening, Hugo's father gathered his family into the barracks. And it was Hanukkah, which is the Jewish feast of lights. Now, I would disagree theologically um, because I don't think it's what the scripture teaches, but what I'm about to say, I think there's some truth in, okay? And so Hugo, as a young child, watched in horror as his, his father took this last pad of butter. It was all they had to help make dinner that night, the little bit of food that they had. And he took this last pad of butter and he took a string off of his ragged clothes and he, he molded this last pad of butter around this string and he made a makeshift candle. And then for Hanukkah, he, he lit this candle for the Jewish Feast of Lights. And as he lit the candle, Hugo remembers, he said, I said to my father, I said, Dad, no, that butter is our last bit of food. How will we survive? And he said, I'll never forget my father looked at me and he said, son, we can live we can live for many days without food, but we cannot live a single minute without faith and hope. This is the fire of hope. Never let it go out. Not here, not anywhere. We've been entrusted with the hope of an incredible inheritance.
And when we gather corporately and we read our Bible, we do baptism, we take the Lord's Supper, we gather in small groups, gather for prayer time, we do serve projects together, we do missions projects together. All of these things are symbols and shadows of what is really the substance. And what's the substance? The substance is Christ and the place that he's taking us called heaven. And there's some of you here this morning that as a believer, you've forgotten that, man. You, you've kind of latched on to the shadow and the symbol as if that's life-giving. Now, the shadow and the symbol reminds us of what's true. There's some of you who are not even believers yet, and you're trying to suck life out of things that the Scripture said are not life-giving. And you're, and, and, and you're sucked, your soul is sucked dry. And it's not until you let go of the things of the world and you trust in Christ who is the substance. The Bible says that not only does he give us abundant life, he gives us eternal life. And so let me remind you of the substance this morning. Here it is, ready? Because the Apostle John records it in Revelation 21. So as you take part in the symbols and you take part of the shadows, this is the substance. Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that great news? And he who was seated on the throne, he said, behold, I'm making all things new. And I love this. He looks at John here. He says, John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and what, church? They're true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The symbols and the shadow reminds us of this substance. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it wasn't true, I would have told you. And this is the place he is preparing where our faith becomes sight. And so in the meantime, Christian, cling to Christ. In the meantime, discouraged Christian who, man, you're like, man, when, when, when I'm hurting, it's difficult, let me tell you, Cling to Christ. In the meantime, Christians, you wrestle with that sin day in and day out. Don't quit. Continue to wrestle. Cling to Christ because there will be a day that the shadows and the symbols become our substance. It is Christ and his heaven, and I cannot wait. How about you? Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of Christ. And God, our faith, we long for the day that our faith becomes sight, God. 
And in the meantime, we encourage one another, we worship with one another, we, we do small group together so that our hearts can be reminded on a daily, moment-by-moment moment basis that we need to cling to Christ because we are in the now and not yet time. But we need to be reminded and we need to be encouraged that there is a substance that is coming. It is Christ and his heaven. And he said to John, if it... You can write this down and you can take it to the bank because it is true. And we encourage one another till the day that our faith becomes sight. And we look forward to that day. Just like Pastor Sam was talking about with the children as they got education, they had a, they had a dream about the future. Guess what? All of us have a dream about an eternal future that's a sure thing. And we cling to Christ. And we cling to Christ. And we cling to Christ till the day that our faith becomes sight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.